our Father in heaven. Before we open your word, we praise you again. You are great and greatly to be praised. Marvelous are your works. This our souls know right well. And we pause, Father, to pray that your spirit would stir us. We know better than to ask you to be here. This is your house. I pray that we would be here. I pray that rather than just being here bodily, you'd, you'd, you'd attract our, our minds. You, you, you'd win our attention, our affections, our, our focus at this time. Lord, you have called us together not just out of habit, not just because it's camp meeting time, not because this is what we do, but you've called us together so you can do what you do. And we pray that you would speak to us now in a voice that cannot be mistaken, that your Holy Spirit would stir us. Bless now, please, we pray. In Jesus' name, please say, Amen. Amen. Where they came from exactly, nobody knows. Best we can say is that they came from Eastern Polynesia. That's true. But if you were to look at a map, that's not narrowing it down a whole lot. They had come some hundreds of years before. And by now, peace was the cornerstone of their culture. And here's why. In the 16th century, a tribal leader whose name was Nunuku heard away in the distance sounds of disputing, of fighting. He didn't like that. He emerged from his cave. Don't get me wrong, they weren't cave dwellers, but Nunuku, for some reason, living or staying in a cave at that time, he emerged from his dwelling and went out there to where the young men were carrying on, and he remonstrated with them. We can't carry on like this. We live on a small island in the middle of nowhere. We are stuck with each other. We mustn't be like this. In spite of the fact that warfare, inter-tribal conflict, was common. Nunuku said, not for us. And he instituted a certain code of conduct. There would be no violence. But knowing, knowing boys will sometimes be boys, he said, if you must fight, <clears throat> the only weapon you can use is a stick no thicker than a man's finger at the first sight of blood, you must stop. Nunuku's law was adopted by the Moriori people of Rekohu, known today as Chatham Island. It's 500 miles east of the South Island of New Zealand. It's about as close to the middle of nowhere as you can get. But in 1835, everything changed for the peaceful Moriori. And that's because 900 Maori from the Ngati Mutunga and Ngati Tama tribes, tribes arrived aboard the Lord Rodney. The Lord Rodney made two trips. And they landed there at the island then known as Rekohu. Well, the Moriori, recognizing that their visitors were tired, many of them seasick, many of them just plain unwell, recognized these people needed help. They said, stay, we will help you. We'll help you regain your health here. You're out of provisions. Enjoy our food. It is bountiful. It's plentiful. They said, as a matter of fact, why don't you just stay? There is room and food enough for all of us. Just stay. But it soon became apparent that these were not visitors. 
these were invaders. And they had malice on their minds. They were cannibals. They kept slaves. What would the Moriori do? Remember, they don't fight. They convened a council at a place called Tawapatiki. The young men said, let's fight. Although we are not practiced warriors, we can fight. There are 2,000 of us. There are 900 of them. Let's fight them off. Let's repel them. Let's send them back into the sea from which they came. But the elders spake. They said, how can we do that? That's not who we are. That's not what we believe. That is not what we stand for. We stand for, we believe in peace. We have maintained this peace for hundreds of years. Do we back up now? Simply because our survival is in jeopardy? This was a time of soul-searching. You know it's one thing to imperil your existence to save a friend. It's one thing to imperil your existence to stand up for human rights. It's another thing to imperil your existence to throw off tyranny. But were the Moriori really prepared to die for an ideal? They die for that, and not just die. They would meet with a ghastly end. But they considered that this was more than an ideal. This was who they were. This was their identity. And so they chose to be true to their principles, true to their core values. How could they be anything but true to who they were? They decided they were committed. In less than 20 years, they were gone. Every last one of them. Many were taken as slaves. Many were cannibalized. Some were taken when the tide was out and tied between stakes at the low tide mark. The captors just waited for the tide to roll on over top of them. It was said if you understand the culture, you can understand this. If you don't, you cannot. It was said that many just died of a broken heart. Many just lost the will to live and they died. But by 1863, now there's a year. By 1863, they were gone. Gone. That question, who are we? Think about that for a moment. That question, what are we made of? That question, what do we stand for as a people? That question, answer it and it will define you. Answer that question and you'll have found your sinosure. You'll have found your polaris. That question, it's a significant question. Question. Considering that, there are myriad places in God's Word where we could turn, but this morning, I would like to go with you down a road less traveled. And so, to that end, I invite you to open your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 35. Jeremiah chapter 35. And a people who were asked and answered the question, Who are we? What do we stand for as a people? Jeremiah chapter 35, we shall begin in verse 1. 
which says, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Go to the house of the Rechabites, speak to them, and bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, <clears throat> and give them wine to drink. This was God speaking through His prophet. Bring them into a room in the temple and set before them wine. Tell them to drink it. So Jeremiah says later, this is verse 4 now, So I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah. Verse 5, Then I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites bowls full of wine and cups. And I said to them, drink wine. Now, friend, it is true, he did, not to say, he did not say to them, Thus saith the Lord, thou shalt drink wine. He did not. But he said what he said, it was abundant. He said what he said, it is abundantly clear to us what he said. Now, now let me just call a time out to digress for a brief moment and consider with you this. We know well, full well, that there are voices, loud voices, and not only on the periphery, who love to denigrate the prophetic message given by God to our church. Many of them would never admit to doing so, but they would, they would damn the message with faint praise. You don't have to read between the lines to hear what they are saying. Ladies and gentlemen, if we want to see Jesus honored, this is no time to be going soft on the spirit of prophecy. No time. Caveling and cynicism about what we believe as a people ought to be entertained like you entertain cancer. I am not talking about being mean-spirited, but ladies and gentlemen, the gift of prophecy was not my idea. It was not your idea. It was not dreamed up by church administrators sitting around a conference table. It was and still is God's idea given to us for a purpose. God wants us to have special insight into His guidance that we might safely navigate these troubled waters of Earth's last days and stand one day soon victorious over on the other shore. Would you say amen? amen? This was God's idea, not mine. The truth is too precious for us to surrender now. Amen. And so the Rechabites answer in verse 6, We will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, You shall drink no wine, nor your sons forever. And there were other things he said about building houses or sowing seeds and planting vineyards. Don't do that, we were told. And in verse 8 we read, Thus we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he charged us to drink no wine all our days. Jeremiah, we hear you. We feel you. We get you. Jeremiah, we understand you. But we are not going to do what you say. We might seem contrary. We might come off as ornery. You might think we are uncooperative. But we've got a message for you, Jeremiah. What we are is committed and we will not be moved. The Rechabites wouldn't relent. They were dedicated. They were all in. They were committed. And you know what's fascinating? I find the Rechabites don't show up again in the rest of the Bible. As a matter of fact, look though you might, you won't find them before Jeremiah chapter 35 either. The only time they pop up in the biblical narrative is right here in the 35th chapter of the book of Jeremiah. Only place. God 
brings them onto the biblical scene, enters them into the scriptural landscape for the purpose of helping us see what commitment looks like. They were challenged to compromise their calling. They were challenged to water down the Word of God for the greatest of reasons. They could have said, the prophet told us that we ought to do that. But for all of that, they said, we cannot, for this is who we are. And so I feel we must ask ourselves this morning, who are we? What do we really stand for? What? Well, I think we can agree on certain things. One is, we stand for the gospel. Would you say amen? Particularly as it is expressed in the messages delivered by the three angels. We stand for Christ. And we stand for what Christ stands for. We are here on this earth for one reason. That God might save us. And then we might be busy, used by God, getting God's work done. We stand for reflecting Christ. We stand for letting Jesus have his way. A smart aleck came to Jesus one day and tried to trap him in his words. But Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God. With what? With, with all. With all your heart. With all your soul. And with how much of your mind? All. That's what commitment looks like. Jesus calls us not to be half-hearted, but to be all in. And the fact of the matter is, when you are half-hearted, that's when you have troubles. When you are double-minded, that's when you are not sure which direction to turn. But when you are all in, you have one thing left to do, and that is simply to follow Jesus and God's will for your life. Simplifies the thing. God has given us our mandate. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. God has delivered to His people a transformational message of hope and wholeness. There is a world to win. All around us, there are people going down to Christless graves. Listen, that's the clock you can hear. Tick, 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 ticking. Time doesn't stand still just because we do. Jesus is soon to return. We cannot go on inventing ways to occupy ourselves doing things other than prosecuting the mission God has given us. If ever there was a time for a full court press, my brother, my sister, that time is now. It's now. We are not unaware of the challenges. We are not. We are not unaware that, that unity is, is never simple. Unless, of course, everybody chooses to surrender to Jesus. But it's not always simple. Even then, we'll come at things with, with different viewpoints and different ways of looking at things. It's not always easy. But let's not act like it's, like it's impossible. If we unite around Jesus, if we unite with Him, we unite with each other. And when we, united, when we are united with Christ, we will be united in mission. And we can get on doing the things that we really ought to be doing. It is not possible to be committed to God without being committed to what God loves. And God loves the church. And God loves the lost. Would you say amen? I would submit to you today that God has encouraged us. I think He has. God has shown us that this is the time. God has demonstrated to us what He is capable of. Somebody came up with a bright idea. Let's go to Rwanda. Let's hold 2,000 evangelistic series. And by the time they were done, there were 100,000 people baptized in Rwanda. 100,000. Well, there's one question that ought to be asked. And that question is, when are we doing it again? When? If we baptized 100,000 last year, my goodness, we ought to baptize another 100,000 this year. I understand that the TMI project is operating in various places around the world, but I loved what I heard Pastor Howard say earlier. You don't get busy sharing Christ this year and then take a year off. If you have success this year, you press ahead, believing that God will give you success next year. 
If you went on a mission trip and you saw people baptized and one and disciples made, come on now, you better do that again. Or somebody better, your church held an outreach. You had people come and had their blood pressure checked and their heart rate monitored. They had some kind of a, a, a health workup and somebody offered them a Bible study. Come on now, do it again. If it's that simple, do it again. Do it again. Why are we waiting? Huh? Held an evangelistic series 10 years ago. Ah, oh, four people were baptized. Hallelujah. If you'd held one every year since then, you'd have another 36 baptized. What are we waiting for? God has shown us that we can have success when we get busy doing His work. God has called us to evangelism in all of its forms. Let the critics carp and bicker, but don't let anybody distract us from what God has called us to do. Nehemiah said, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and come down to you? Jesus said 2,000 years ago, take a look at the fields. They are white, ready for the harvest. We stand on the verge of the greatest ingathering of souls. We talk about the latter rain. We know that company after company are going flooding into the church. Why wait, man? Let's go find them, compel them. Christ said, go out to the highways and the byways. Find people. Don't just wait for them to come to you. You might say, oh my goodness, look at Detroit. We have that many members and yet there are that many people. You know what that is? That's an opportunity. We might look at the great cities of the world, the cities like Tokyo where there are precious few Christians and you might say, oh my goodness, what do we do? What do we do? We do what Jesus said. He said, go. Why? The Bible says this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached for a witness, uh, to all the world for a witness to all nations. What, what was that word? It shall. It will. Not might. Not won't. It will. It is going to happen. If you want, you can sit on the bleachers watching from a distance. But you'd miss the blessing. It's better to be down there on the front lines in the heat of the battle, working in the spirit of Jesus, offering somebody salvation in Jesus, knowing that there will be those who say yes, and you will have them with you in heaven for all eternity. Latter rain is about to fall. If you look at the cup half empty, well, you would be a sad sack. If you would look at the cup half full, you would say God is doing great things, and the great things are going to get greater. Now, you remember the periodic table of elements. You learned that while you were in school. It starts with what? I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> Hydrogen, bless you. And then, and then, and then, helium. And then, oh, we have a science student down here. Lithium, uh, laptop is open. You Googled that already. You Googled that. I'm taking notes, are you? That's what you say. Hyd I believe you, of course. Hydrogen, helium, lithium, then what? All right, great, we got to three. <laughs> if the future of the world depends on Seventh-day Adventists dealing with science, I think we're doomed. <clears throat> Thank God we've just been called to deal with the science of salvation. Thank God for that. Hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, fluorine, neon. But that's better than y'all. Way better. Drop down to number 55. There's, I know what you're thinking. There's a 55? You thought there were 10. No, there, no, there's more. Number 55 is something called cesium. And cesium is a fascinating little thing. You see, cesium has one electron on its outer shell, its valence shell. And when cesium gets near something that is lacking an electron, that one cesium atom, molecule, electron will leap and join up to the one lacking an electron. And when it does, boom, it gets exciting. So if you get it near fluorine, if you get it near iodine, if you get it near bromine, if you get it near chlorine, there's activity. Why? Because the the cesium electron leaps. Why does it do that? Is it a stalker? Does it sit around waiting? Aha! I'm looking for somebody's happy day. I'm about to ruin it. 
No, no. The cesium atom does what it does because it is what it is. It cannot help itself. It's just wired that way. It has that spare electron. It sees one missing from uh, some other thing. I'll help. Boom. It's not a troublemaker. It doesn't mean to mess anything up. But it just can't help itself. It does what it does because it is what it is. You know what I believe? I believe when God has us like he wants to have us, we will do what we do. Not because somebody said, it's evangelism time. Oh, man, that peer pressure got me again. Not that. We'll start our day praying for divine opportunities. We'll start our day believing, believing, knowing, Lord, there's somebody you have for me today. Bring that person to me or take me to that person. When God has us like he wants to have us, the salvation of others will be our primary preoccupation. We won't need to be taking evangelism offerings with poultry uh, targets like $350,000. Instead, the brethren will be saying, what do we do with all of this money? The saints just want to continue to contribute to this work of saving souls because they are so given over to Jesus and they are driven by the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. When God has us like he wants to have us, we will take the Great Commission seriously. We will go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't have to go. Ladies and gentlemen, no one's going to force you. If you don't go, God's work is going to get done anyhow. The rocks will cry out. I learned long ago that I am not God's gift to evangelism. I learned that evangelism is God's gift to me. It's God's gift to all of us. E.M. Bounds wrote many years ago, the church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. When we're committed to God's church, committed to the church, committed to the mission, committed to God's calling in our lives, the work friend will get done and we'll be out of here. And finally, we will get to go home. We have been told that through the church, this is not a hope, this is not a wish, this is not a maybe, through the church will eventually be made manifest the final and full display of the love of God. Commitment. Tell you what that looks like. That's the woman breaking the alabaster box full of ointment. She gave Jesus the best that she had. It's the widow giving two mites. She gave God all that she had. The widow gave the prophet the last little bit of oil that she had. Isaiah said, here am I, send me. Jacob wrestled with the angel and he said, I will not let you go except thou bless me. Samson pulled down a heathen temple. David ran towards Goliath. A little voice said, I don't have much. It's just five loaves and two fish. But if you can use them, you are welcome to them. Ruth told Naomi, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. The disciples left their nets. Joseph rebuffed the advances of Potiphar's wife. Abraham chose to offer up Isaac. Noah built an ark. Elijah built an altar. Moses built a sanctuary. Nehemiah built a wall. They were committed to God. And so they stood up. They stepped up and they lit up history with an example of what commitment looks like. So we can look and say, yes, Lord, use me too. God wants to see what he can do in you when he has you by the heart. Praise the Lord. Years ago, well, just a few years ago, I was in Papua New Guinea. I went to a village and they told me something about the history of the village. 50 years before, and many of us are old enough to know that 50 is not really a very long time. 50 years before, a young missionary from New Zealand, a man named Len Barnard, traveled to that very place. He said, I'm going to take the gospel to the people down in those valleys. They said, no, Pastor, you can't do that. They are cannibals. They will eat you. He said, you pray, I'll go. He took a bag of medicine in one hand, a Bible in the other, and a prayer in his heart. And he went down and started ministering to those people who really were cannibals. As a matter of fact, uh, the night a man died down there, and he, he, had, he had become friendly with these folks, he had to sit up all night long with the body so that the locals wouldn't snatch the body away and eat the body. 
We wanted to teach them what Christians do with dead bodies. I was there 50 years later. Walk into this place. It's as clean as clean. 50 years ago, the people were, were living in fear. It, they were filthy. It was, it was, it was disease-ridden. They had enemies everywhere. Nobody could trust anybody. I get there, walk in, the grass is cut. Now, that's a big deal because they have to cut it by hand. Beautiful flowers are growing everywhere. The place is neat and tidy. No enemies. No demons anywhere in sight. These are Christians. They live in peace with one another. My friend wanted to show me the little church. They were building a church over here. They'd been building it for a while, evidently. But here was the little church. I walked in. There was no door. Of course, there was a doorway, but no door. There were window openings, but no windows. And I walked up to the front, and I said, what is this? There was money in a basket up front on what appeared to be the communion table. I said, what's this? He said, the offering. What? But today's Sunday. No, that's yesterday's offering. I said, what's it doing here? He said, nobody's going to steal it. These are Christians. No one's going to take that money. Now, there are Christians where you go to church too. But the offering is taken up. The deacons take it out. They put it in a bag, take it to the pastor's office or the secretary's office or the treasurer's office, depending on how you roll, and they lock it in the safe, lock the office door, lock the church, and pray nobody pinches the money. And here's a group of people who are living in harmony. They're as honest as the day is long. They love God. Why? Because somebody went. He was committed. A Scots missionary named John Patton <clears throat> excuse me, was determined to share Jesus in a place called the New Hebrides. Now it's Vanuatu in the South Pacific. A Mr. Dixon said to our man Patton, <clears throat> The cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. John Patton answered and said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and soon you will be laid in the grave and eaten by worms. <laughs> if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it makes no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. <laughs> committed, ladies and gentlemen, committed. Scottish martyr George Wishart was fully aware that Patrick Hamilton had been burned at the stake. If you visit St. Andrews in Scotland, you go by St. Andrews University, right out front of St. Salvatore's Chapel, on the street, in the paving, is a PH. And that's because on that spot, Patrick Hamilton was martyred by the church for his Protestant views. George Wishart traveled over to the continent, came back with his head full of Protestantism, and started preaching. This was just a few years after Hamilton had died. He knew what happened to Patrick Hamilton. And so today, if you start at the PH and you walk about 450 meters, you'll come to the ruins of the old St. Andrew's Cathedral. In front of that, in the cobblestones, on the road, there's a GW. Because right there, George Wishart was strangled and then burned at the stake. This brother knew what had happened to Patrick Hamilton. He knew it. But could anything stop him from sharing Jesus? Nothing. Not even the stake. He had to do what he did because he was what he was. Life was on the line. As far as I can tell, as I look around here, our lives aren't on the line. Not at all. What's stopping us? Nothing much. A friend of mine asked a friend of his, a missionary, to a, a dangerous place, a really dangerous place. Aren't you afraid of dying? And this young missionary quoted an old famous missionary, and he said, we died before we got here. Ladies and gentlemen, knowing about threats on his life, knowing that the plane on which he had traveled to Memphis had had to be guarded all night long because of threats on his life. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stood on the platform in the Mason Temple in Memphis. He was there in behalf of striking sanitation workers, and he proclaimed, I just want to do God's will. He's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. 
And the next day, outside room 306 of the Lorraine Motel, the unthinkable happened. What drives a person to make that kind of sacrifice? Wrong question. When you are committed to God, it's not a sacrifice. The cesium atom doesn't make any sacrifice. It jumps because it has to jump. It jumps because of what it is. And so when the Spirit of God prompts you and says, share that tract, share that bowl of soup, you do what you do because you are what you are. When the Spirit of God prompts you and says, it's time for you to sacrifice the corporate life and give yourself to a life of ministry, you don't count the cost. You say, all right, God, if you've called me, you'll take care of me. If the Lord calls you to serve in some distant country, you go. If he calls you to serve in your home, in your backyard, in your neighborhood, here in this territory, you say, here I am, Lord. Not that you believe you are able, knowing you are unable, you believe in God, the one who is able. Why? Because we are committed to him. Now, if I followed this to its illogical conclusion, you could accuse me of having the cart before the horse. I wonder if you've been thinking about this. If we take a moment to be honest, and I hope we can do that, we would admit that we are faulty people, all of us. All of us. We are flawed. We are inadequate. We are broken. You look at the disciples, you say, well, there were 12. One of them, one of them flamed out. That left 11. Their theology was bad. Not all of it, but, 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 but some key components of their theology was very, very flawed. They argued among themselves. They wanted to be the greatest. And Jesus gave the keys to the whole thing to this 11 and said, go, go and do this work. We wonder how that could, could even work out well. We wonder. And then let's be honest. Look at ourselves. We can't claim to be better than anybody. How in the world is God going to get the work done that he wants to get done? We know from bitter experience that our promises are like ropes of sand. How can we even be committed to God? I'll tell you that which makes it possible for us to be committed to God is the fact that God, the wonderful fact, the blessed fact that God is committed to you. Amen. And that's the genius of the plan of salvation. You are weak, God says. My strength is made perfect in weakness. You battle temptation and God says, I will make a way of escape. You don't know everything you wish you knew. God says, wisdom shall be given you. You're facing a tough decision and you don't know which way to go. The Bible says, I, God, will direct your path. Corrupt. It was God who said, a new heart also will I give you. And a new spirit, listen to the wording, and a new spirit will I put within you. God, friend, will do that. He will supply your need. He will supply the need of this church. He will supply our need in the face of what seems like an impossible mission. Because God is committed to the work that Jesus started our scripture reading said in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 24, Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. God will get the work done in your life because God is committed to you. God had a plan for Jonah. Jonah ran as hard as he could in the opposite direction. God went right after him and brought Jonah back. Prodigal son left home. Spirit of God went with him, spoke to his heart every step of that long journey to the far country, spoke to his heart while he was living like a fool, spoke to his heart while he was sitting in the filth of a pigsty, spoke to his heart. The prodigal son heard him and went home to dad. Band began to play out there on a plain of Dura. But there were three men standing out there that God steeled with Holy Spirit strength. Daniel went into the lion's den, but God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. No predicament you get in is too great for God to get you out of. Even if it is of your own making, God will bring you home. 
this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world. Shall. God is committed to the church, stands at the head of the work and directs us in our mission. There was a book that John ate. It was bitter in his stomach. But God said, prophesy again. God encouraged us. It'll be preached before kings and nations. Go, therefore, preach the everlasting gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. There is nothing to hold us back, to keep us back from getting God's work done. God will supply the grace. God will supply the means. More often than not, through us. God will supply the wherewithal. God will give the wisdom. God will give everything we need. And if you feel like you are inadequate or lacking, God will fill you with his presence and do through you what you cannot do yourself. A leper spoke to Jesus one day. He said, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Which means, of course, if you are willing, if you want to. He said to Jesus, if you want to, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I want to. And so be clean. They said, we are dying of thirst out here in the desert. Jesus said, I want to. Water came from a rock. They were hungry. Man, we might as well go back to Egypt and eat what we had back there. God said, I want to. And he carpeted the ground with manna. We have nothing out here. No hope. But our eyes are on you, Jehoshaphat said. And God said, I want to. And the invading armies turned against each other. My friend, God still wants to. He is committed to this church. He is committed to you. He is committed to your challenges, either solving your challenges or solving you in the midst of your challenges. God is committed to the mission that we are on. Our best days are ahead. There is no question. Look to Jesus on the cross. What was he doing out there? Bearing your sins. Why? So you would have a future. Bearing your sins so you could look forward to everlasting life. Dying for the sins of the world so men and women and boys and girls all throughout Michigan, all throughout the Lake Union, across the North American division and around the world could have hope in spite of their brokenness, hope in spite of their inadequacy, hope in spite of their sin. Christ has died. We have everything we need, everything for our own journey and everything we need to get the work done. The resilience in this church is the God of this church. We can't let ourselves be divided we got to come together in mission, come together in evangelism, come together in soul winning. I was told years ago by a church administrator, a pulling horse does not kick. That's true. And where you find kicking, you will find an absence of pulling. God points us to our work. He says, get busy, get it done, get it done. And when we work with Christ, we see Christ doing remarkable, remarkable things. If he's called you to mission, a place where your back is to the wall and you don't know where your earthly support is coming from, you can go because God has called you. If he's called you to do something in your family or in your backyard, you can go knowing that God is with you. A friend of God, Jesus is soon to return. Jesus is soon to return. And God is calling us to do the only thing we can, the only thing we can, and that's do something about the lost, to bring them back to the safety of the arms of Jesus. Now the phenomenon came and the phenomenon is about went, but a phenomenon it was, the movie Hacksaw Ridge. The story, the story that we knew, the story of a man named Desmond Doss, who out there on the battlefield, when the troops pulled back, he stayed, he said, I gotta do something about the dying and the wounded, I've gotta do something, I've gotta get them down from here. And so we know the story about how Doss used that, that rope knot and load people, load, 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 lowered, let them down the hillside. How many do you save out there? How many do you know? 75. You know why, right? He said, I couldn't have saved more than 50. The soldiers who were there said, he saved at least 100. 
And so Uncle Sam split the difference and said he saved 75. In all likelihood, if the eyewitnesses are to be believed, he saved a whole bunch more than 75. This man was a hero. There's no doubt about it. You know, an interesting thing was, at a screening of the film before it was released, a man who used to be Desmond Doss's pastor raised his hand and asked the producer a question. He said, in the movie, you show Desmond Doss dragging the men to safety. Whereas in reality, he dragged the first two, figured that God was with him, and then carried the next 48, 73, 98, carried them. If God is with me, God is with me. And if he's not, then it doesn't really matter. So he carried them. Why did you show him dragging them? The producer said, we know about that. If we had showed it as it really was, nobody would have believed us. Which means that God is greater than fiction. And you know what Desmond Doss did. He dragged one to safety, dragged another to safety, then he started carrying them to safety. And he lowered them down that cliff. Friends, comrades, buddies took the fellow and got him some treatment. And then Doss got down on his knees and he prayed and he said, Lord, let me get one more. And he got up and he went out there. And you've heard the stories. You've heard about the Japanese soldiers who had him right there in their sights. And the, and the trigger jammed and he couldn't get a shot off. You've heard about that. There were bullets flying everywhere. And Doss would take one to safety and, and, and get on his knees and pray, Lord, let me get one more. Out he would go. Bring one back. Lord, let me get one more. Out he would go. He'd bring him back. Lord, let me get one more. We don't even know how many times he prayed that prayer. Dozens of times. Scores of times. Lord, let me get one more. Friend, what should our prayer be today? We can go forward in the strength of Jesus. Why? Broken as we are, we can go. Why? Incomplete, we can go. Why? As inadequate as we might be, we can go out and do something for God because God is committed to this church. God is committed to you. We can go today and pray, Lord, let me get one more. Lord, let me get one. There's somebody out there, Lord. Let me get one more. Friend, how is it with you today? Now, I need to speak to your heart for just a moment. Maybe you are the one more. Maybe you are the one more. Well, this would be an opportunity for you to say yes to Jesus. Yes, Lord, save me. If you're engaged in the work of, of, of sharing Jesus with others, God bless you. I know there are probably hundreds of people here today who are. There are hundreds of people here today who are not. You're afraid? What off? You feel like you don't know enough? Sure you do. You're worried that people are going to ask you questions you don't know the answer to? Tell them you don't know. Go find the answer. All you have to do is tell God you are willing. Willing. If you'll let God know that you are willing, then God will use you in amazing ways for His glory. It's too late. It's 2017. It's too late in the history of the earth for us to be doing other stuff. It's too late. If I were to ask for a show of hands, but I will not. How many people in this place really, really, truly expected Jesus to be back before now? Most hands would go up. Those of us who've believed since we were children, that, that's not me, but those of us who have, we thought Jesus would be back by now. He's not back. Why is that? He's waiting for us to take this gospel to the world. He's waiting for us to be ready. We don't need to concern ourselves with God's timetable like we talked about last night. For whatever reason Jesus hasn't returned, He has waited. He has waited for us to be ready. He's waited for us to share Jesus with others and let others be ready. And as we share Christ, we are ready to meet Christ. So come on, friend, you know that we're going to close with prayer, but I'm asking that you would ask God to save you thoroughly and to put you to work sharing Jesus with somebody else. Would you pray with me? Can we bow our heads right now?
a Father in heaven. We are thankful today for your commitment to us. You have never forgotten us. You said you'd never leave us or forsake us. You didn't bounce us when we made mistakes. You didn't drop us when we strayed to the left or to the right. You never became impatient with us. Yea, verily, the Bible says the long-suffering of our God is salvation. And today you look towards us with a heart filled with love. Lord, there's a world to win. We confess we cannot do it, but we know that you can. And we know that you wish to use us. And there are people here today who need to be one. Friend, is that you, the one who needs to be one? You're not walking with Christ. Would you reach out to him by faith now and invite him into your heart? Oh, don't give me that. I've tried and failed. That's the problem. You've been trying instead of letting Jesus do his work in you. Don't tell me you're too bad. You're not. Don't tell me you're too far away. You can never be too far away. Would you let Jesus into your heart now and let him save you? forever would you let him save you now and always so father look upon us take our hearts and make them yours and when we are yours put it in us to be so committed to you that we will be committed to those things to which you are committed there is a world waiting to hear the good news give us grace to share that good news with all of our strength with every fiber of our being. When that great day comes, when Jesus comes again, let us be standing on the circle of the earth saying, Lo, this is our God. We've waited for him and he will save us. But not alone. Let our number swell. Let our number grow. Let there be many more who will come to faith in Jesus Christ through the work of your Spirit working in us. We offer you our hearts and our lives and we praise you and love you and thank you and we pray in Jesus name Amen This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons please visit www dot audioverse dot org